Hi, everybody. My name's Johnny, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> I'm uh, glad to be here tonight, and I'm glad to be sober. If you're new here in Alcoholics Anonymous tonight, I hope the word being sober doesn't offend you as bad as it offended me when I said in my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. When I said in my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, it was the fourth day of November, 1959, and the people of Alcoholics Anonymous talked to me about being sober. And I didn't think Alcoholics Anonymous had anything to offer me. And the reason I didn't think that is because I was as sober when I came to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous as I am right now. As physically sober. But that always seemed to be my problem. If I could have stayed loaded forever, I'd have never came to Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> but I kept getting interrupted out there on my happy road of destiny. <laughs> you know, uh, Things change, and they keep inventing things to, or think they keep inventing things, because I I don't know of anything that's ever new, but they have a, a new thing in my part of the world, or they think it's a new thing in my part of the world, called intervention. <laughs> I want you to know the Los Angeles County Sheriff knew about intervention in 1940. <laughs> <laughs> And if you live the way I live for any length of time, they'll intervene in your life, too. <laughs> but you know, I have been sober without any alcohol and mood altering chemicals in my system from the first moment I sit with you good people to this evening. And, uh, <laughs> and I think about sober and sobriety a lot. Matter of fact, uh, it probably uh, occupies most of my time, my thought process. And you know, when I think about being sober, the idea that there's no alcohol or chemicals in my system doesn't even mean into the picture. Sobriety, I live. I lived a certain way for a long period of time, and for a long period of time, I couldn't stay sober. I have lived an entirely different way for a long period of time, and all that period of time, I've been necessarily me drink anything swallow anything, smoke anything, or stick anything in my arm. Now, for that, I'm extremely grateful. Now, I'm extremely pleased to be here tonight, fully clothed and in my right mind. <laughs> That'll give you some kind of clue where I came from. <laughs> now, I don't tell you that for any particular reason, other than the fact that the longer I stay sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, the more necessary it becomes for me to remember from whence I came. And I never want to forget that a little over 33 years ago tonight, I was crawling around on my knees in a cell in solitary confinement at a maximum security penitentiary. Because of a loving God has expressed himself through a program called Alcoholics Anonymous. No longer necessary for me to crawl around on my hands and eat like an animal. If I don't get anything out of this deal at all other than that, I can live with it for a long time. I've been vastly overpaid. I'd like to be able to stand here tonight or anywhere anybody would listen to me for any length of time and tell you that that's where alcohol and drugs took me to. Oh, I'd love to be able to. I'd like to be able to say that's when my mother sent me to. That seems to be popular. <laughs> That's where I took me to. I took me there. The only thing that alcohol did in my life 
It kept me alive long enough to find Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm as sure as I'm standing here without alcohol working in my life, I'd have blown my brains out before I was nine years old. I've always been an emotional misfit. I never seemed to belong anywhere. I wandered around kind of anxious and hostile and bitter and angry. God, I was an angry little kid. I don't know where that came from. Just was always angry. I didn't like who I was, where I was, or who I was around. I didn't understand that. Didn't understand it at all. I knew as much about alcohol and what it would do to people when I was sore as I know tonight. As much about it. I had a ringside seat watching whiskey destroy people. I watched my uncle drink whiskey and go to penitentiary. I watched my aunt drink whiskey and work in those houses on the other side of the tracks. I watched mom drink whiskey and beat up dad. I watched dad drink whiskey and beat up mom. I watched them both drink whiskey and beat me up. I saw what whiskey did to people. And way back there somewhere I said to myself, I'm not going to drink because I'm not going to be like them. I'm going to be better than they are. I'm going to step out into that world. I'm going to have something and I'm going to do something and I'm going to be something. But one day sitting on the back porch of my grandpa's house, I reached down underneath his porch and took out his jug and took a drink of his alcohol. And in that moment of my life, I sold myself into bondage for the next 20 years of my life. Not to alcohol, or later to the drugs that came into my life, but to the feeling I got when I drank alcohol. Something happened to me when I drank alcohol. There was a feeling that went down inside of me and still the screaming madness. It took me from the black pit of nothingness that stood me into the gray fringe of the business of living. It installed in me some type of arrogance that said, Damn you, Will, it's all right. I'm not good enough to be around the good people, but I'm too good to be around the bad people. It's okay right here. That's what alcohol did for me. I'll tell you something. If alcohol still did that, I'd still drink it. You know, I don't drink alcohol or use drugs anymore. It didn't work. And I have always needed an answer. Always. I was born needing an answer. And the reason I'm an alcoholic is not because I drank alcohol or whiskey for the next 20 years of my life. The reason I'm an alcoholic is because sitting there looking back on it with sober eyes for a long period of time, I saw it as sitting on that back porch of my grandpa's house. I had some type of an abnormal reaction to alcohol. That everybody who drinks doesn't have it. Alcohol did something for me that it doesn't do for everybody that drinks it. That's why I'm an alcoholic. Not for the next 20 years of mayhem that I created in life or how much whiskey I drank. You can drink 17 million gallons of whiskey. And if you don't have an abnormal reaction to alcohol, you ain't never going to be an alcoholic. I have a brother who's not an alcoholic. My older brother's not an alcoholic. He is weird, but he is not an alcoholic. <laughs> My older brother doesn't understand why I drank, and I don't understand why he didn't. <laughs> you know how he do? He'd take two drinks and quit. And if you'd say, why are you stopping? He said, I'm starting to feel it. <laughs> I thought that's when you stuck it into overdrive. I didn't know that's when you knocked it off. I mean... But that's the difference between my my brother and I, and my brother, my older brother and I. He's really a weird fellow, really. He just, 
But he's a nice guy. He's done everything that people are supposed to do, I guess, out there. He never been in jail in his life unless he come to visit me. <laughs> <laughs> but I took a drink of alcohol, and every time I drank for the next 20 years of my life, the same thing happened to me. I took a drink of alcohol, and three days later they pulled me out from underneath the bridge and stood me in front of a judge and sent me to the Hutchinson State Reform School. Twenty years later, I took a drink of alcohol. They pulled me out of the car and cop and stood me in front of a judge and sent me to 20 years of penitentiary. That's what happened to me. I got drunk and went places. <laughs> I went from reform school to reform school to junior penitentiaries to penitentiaries to nut houses. Now they call them treatment centers. But <laughs> You know, you, I don't know how you feel about it, I don't, but uh, uh, <laughs> in my neighborhood when I was growing up, you know, it was real, it was real important in my neighborhood where I lived to be macho. Damn. I remember I was on a floor of the phone school one day and we were standing around passing the jug around and somebody said, there's old Joe. This came out of San Quentin. We went, oh, Joe. Joe was a big man in the neighborhood. How would you like to wander out of the neighborhood now and they're all standing around passing around a jug and somebody said, Look, there's Jimmy. He just did 30 days in the care unit. (laughs) Not in my neighborhood. You know, I'm sitting on a floor from reform school when I'm 10 or 11 years old. I'm drinking a bottle of Marco Pepe red wine, which was my drink. <laughs> You've never heard of Marco Pepe red wine. There's a good reason for that. Marco Pepe was the experimental stage of the Thunderbird. <laughs> that stuff was so bad it never saw vape, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you how bad it was. I'm having dinner in a restaurant in Palm Springs one time on them fancy restaurants where they have wine stewards and all that kind of stuff. And I called this guy over. I, he came over and I said, you ever heard of Martha Pepe Red Wine? He says, yeah, but I don't know anybody who ever drank or ever lived to talk about it. <laughs> so I said to him, I used to drink it by the gallon. <laughs> Sure you did. <laughs> and he went over and stood in the corner, and every time I saw him watching me the rest of the evening, I'd do things like this. Check <laughs> <laughs> him right there. <laughs> but I'm sitting on this street corner in this school from this reform school, and I'm, I'm drinking this bottle of Marco Pepe red wine. It's not magic anymore. And I don't know what to do about that. And a guy patting me on the shoulder said, why don't you try these? And he handed me some pills. And I don't remember saying to him, what are those? <laughs> Will they bother me if I take them? <laughs> Thank God they weren't X-Lax, that's all I can do. <laughs> 
We could have a whole new 12-step program called Laxative Anonymous. I could be the adult child of a laxative taker. I would have been functional, but mother sat on the toilet all the time when I was little. I think there's stuff stupid or not around here. It seems to fit in pretty good. Works all I can tell you, they worked. Because I'm sitting on that same street corner a couple of years later on a furlough from another reform school. And I'm drinking wine and I'm eating these pills and not doing a trick anymore. And a guy stuck a needle in my arm. And for the next 14 years of my life, I stuck needles in my arm and in out of institutions. That's what I do. I live out on the streets and I do what people like me who live in the streets do. I destroy everything that comes in contact with me. I'm like a plague. I'm selfish, I'm self-centered, and I'm self-serving. i got an ego bigger in this whole room. But you don't need much more than that. I wandered around in my life before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous without any type of conscious thought or conscious concern for any other human being who lived upon the face of this earth except for me. I didn't care about you. I cared about me. The only time I cared about you is if you had something I wanted. And then I cared about you until I got whatever it was that you had that I wanted. And then I went on about my business as if you didn't even exist. If you live like that for any type of period of time, you'll end up like I ended up 33 years ago in that cell, crawling around there drifting in and out of total insanity without anybody sending you penny postcards anymore. Because I'll guarantee you, you used up every living thing in your life. I did. I never one time before I sat in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and for a long time after I was here, never one time in my life ever told any human being upon the face of this earth that I loved them. And the reason I didn't tell them I loved them, because I'm a taker. Takers don't love. Takers use. And if I told you I loved you, you were going to have an edge, and you were going to be able to use me, and I didn't live that way. If I couldn't use you, I had no use for you. That's the way I lived my entire life before I came here. It's not a good way to live. But you'll end up without anybody if you do that too, because sooner or later you use up every living thing and every person in your life. I did. <coughs> I did that myself. Nobody did it. Nobody laid out a program for me to follow to do that. I just did it. In 1951, on my way to penitentiary for the first time in my life, I stood in the old Los Angeles County Jail where my mother screamed at me that I was a murderer. It seemed that my baby brother, the son of my friends, who took an overdose of and died. I didn't handle that very well. I got mad at it and made it go away. I stood handcuffed between two detectives three days later right underneath the tree while they buried the only thing in my life that I cared anything about, my baby brother. And I had all the guilt and shame and humiliation and degradation of a lifetime hanging around my shoulders and I wanted to cry, but I didn't know how. I didn't have the simple gift of tears that God gives every creature that's born on the face of this earth. And the reason I didn't have them because I didn't think they were necessary. I went out of the penitentiary and I stayed there four and a half years. I came out of there four and a half years sicker than I was when I went in there. Just because I go sit somewhere and don't drink doesn't mean I get any better. I'm an alcoholic. I just go sit somewhere and don't drink. I get worse. 
and worse and worse and worse, and then I have to drink. I'm an alcoholic. I cannot stand. The only thing that sobriety ever did in my life was make life so unbearable that I couldn't stand to live in it any longer. So I had to do something about it. Because, you see, every time I was sober, I've always had that big, long line of wreckage right there in my face that I couldn't get rid of. And I didn't know what to do about it. I knew what I did. I spent four and a half years in that penitentiary. I came out of four and a half years sick and I was with, with, when I went in there trying to prove what a psychiatrist in San Quentin told me wasn't true. He said, Johnny, people like you don't change. He says, you're doomed to die in an institution. He took me down and showed me a little green room. He says, you're going to end up here, hot shot. I told him, not me, I'm different. Theme song of the alcoholic. I'm different. Save my life then killed me today. Come off and I went into the bound to turn my head that deal beat and six months later I'm in a nut house kicking and screaming. So I made my round to some of the better laughing academies in the country. Interviewing psychiatrists. They talked to me about my mother and I talked to them about their mother. <laughs> And they introduced me to a thing called Better Living Through Electricity. <laughs> they said I had a bad attitude. You'd have a bad attitude, too, if they did that to you. I mean, I... What I hope and pray to God is my last interview with a psychiatrist. Happened to me in a federal government hospital in Fort Worth, Texas, a little over 34 years ago. If I lived to be a thousand years old, I hope I never forget how I wandered into that man's room and sat down at the chair and looked across his desk and up against his walls for all of his plaques and his diplomas and his degrees. I think for a moment, in an instant sitting there in that man's office that day, I think for a moment inside of me there was a little hope that maybe that was the end of the journey because I wanted out. I didn't know how to get out. None of the answers were answered anymore. None of the things would take the nightmares or the things away from me anymore. I couldn't get rid of the things I'd done. I'm a lot of trouble. So I guess there was a little hope when I looked at all those facts and diplomas and certificates and things that this man got. I thought, maybe he knows. And he sat down and he looked at me and he opened his mouth in the next two minutes. If I had any hope at all, he threw it all out the window because he looked at me and he said, Johnny, if you didn't drink these things and swallow these things and smoke these things and shoot, you wouldn't have any problem. Hmm? You know, when I was in the Hutchinson State Reform School, my counselor told me if I didn't drink, I'd be all right. When I was in juvenile hall in Los Angeles, my counselor told me if I didn't drink, I'd be all right. When I was in Whittier State Reform School, my counselor told me if I didn't drink these things or swallow these things and shoot these things, I'd be okay. They told me that in the Preston School for Boys. They told me that in Pacific Lodge Boys Home. They told me that in San Quentin State Prison. They told me that in Folsom State Prison. They told me that in Lexington, Kentucky. You know what none of them ever took into consideration? Every time they told me that, I was as physically sober as I am right now. As physically sober. And how many times I wanted to scream out at them, good God, doctor, don't you understand? 
Don't you understand, for God's sake? Take this madness from inside of me. I won't ever put that stuff in me. But they don't understand. The only people who understand me are people like me. If you ain't got my disease, you'll never understand it. And you'll never understand me. See, that's what Alcoholics Anonymous is, you know. One alcoholic talking to another alcoholic. It's the language of the heart that only an alcoholic who's been with an alcoholic is knows what the alcoholic does. That's what makes this program so unique in its individuality. It's made it go for the years and it's gone. When I thought, you know what the greatest words I ever heard in my life, and I never heard them before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous? The greatest words I ever, five little words, I understand how you feel. Nobody ever said that to me before I came here. They said to me, don't do that. Why are you doing that? Can't you see what you're doing to yourself? Yes, I can. That's why I'm doing it. I tell you, I left that hospital the next day and went behind and tried to kill myself because that's what alcoholics like me do when we run out of answers. We kill ourselves. When alcohol no longer works for an alcoholic, suicide is the next option. Alcoholics commit suicide cold sober. Cold sober. Usually within their first six or seven months of sobriety. Because they can't stand sobriety. That's what alcoholics like me do. Remember 33 years ago, almost 34 years ago, they tied me down to bed in the old Los Angeles County Jail more dead than alive. They were 128 pounds and I was yellow and the doctor stood at the foot of my bed and told me I was going to die. Son, you're going to die nothing we can do for you, he said. I said, okay. All day passed and all night passed. He came back in my room the next morning and lived down in my bed and he said, son, you're going to die and nothing we can do for you. I said, okay. <laughs> all day passed and all night passed and he came back in the next room the next morning and I had a terror grip me that I've never known before since. The idea came to me I was going to live and not die. I was going to get up out of that bed, go to the penitentiary and come back out and start that rat race all over again. I didn't want to do that. I laid in that bed for 18 days and 18 nights. I didn't need to sleep, drink, or do anything. I just laid there. Now, one night, because I knew nothing better to do, I screamed out the only prayer I'd ever said in my life. I said, oh, God, help me. I thought for a long, long time nothing had happened. There was no blinding flashes of light. Nobody down the hall with a dozen donuts, and we got an AA meeting down there. <laughs> I didn't get up and wander off into the tulip somewhere. I just went to sleep for a little while. I'll tell you how sick I was. Two weeks later, I'm up going around the jail looking for some more of the to put me back in the bed I just got off of. And there's a good reason for that. In the back of my mind where my problem seems to be centered is the knowledge. But I can't stand life on life's terms any longer. I can ingest something into my system and it's okay right now. Right now is all I ever wanted. I never wanted to be that day after tomorrow. I wanted to be right now, right now. And so I got loaded again. Years later, much, much later, 
I used to run around with an old man who was like a father to me, a guy by the name of Chuck Chamberlain, who's dead now. He's the closest thing to a father I've ever had in my life. And Chuck used to talk a great deal about surrender, he said. You know, he'd make his room tremble when he said that. <laughs> and so I asked him one night, as we were going home in this thing, he talked a great deal about surrender. And he said, I said, I want to ask you a question. He said, what do you want to know? I said, you talk about surrender all the time, but you surrendered in your hotel, in your kitchen floor in Beverly Hills, that right? He said, yes. I said, didn't I surrender with just that much of a debt? My debt bill in Los Angeles County Jail, as you did in Beverly Hills? Didn't I? Sure you did, he said. Without a doubt. Why? I said, how come I got loaded two weeks later and you didn't? He said, that's very simple, son. You got to surrender every day. See how they are, and they... <laughs> you know, I stood in front of a superior court judge not long after that, and the man called me a blood-sucking parasite of society. He said I had no right being around decent people. He told a woman sitting in the courtroom who was carrying my child that she cared anything at all about that child that I'd never be allowed to lay eyes on. And said to me that they literally drove me insane. Because he put into words what I had always known about me. Here's one thing I have never been able to do before, during, or after. Alcoholics not. I've never been able to hide me from me. Now I can hide me from you. I'm a master at it. I can dance around with my various uniforms, my various images that I portray about myself that will keep you away from me and hide me from you, but I have never been able to hide me from me. I've always known what kind of a scum I was. See, I'm sober. i got a ringside seat watching the wreckage of my I know what's wrong with me. I'm some type of a thing that crawled out from underneath the rock. I've got faces of the people I've harmed and things I've done. They're right there. I always knew what I was. I had never heard it said before. So for the next nine months of my life, I crawled around in this cell, drifting in and out of total insanity. And that's what stumbled into your meeting on a Sunday in November 1959. I didn't come to Alcoholics Anonymous to get sober or to stay sober. Matter of fact, if I'd have known why I was coming, I probably wouldn't even have come. The reason I came to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous was the institution I was in that women come in there. I came to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous over 31 years ago to smell perfume. And I've been honking and sniffing around ever since. <laughs> You open up them doors, some of us have been fingers coming in. That's just the way it is. I moved in and sit down in the back row, but I lovingly like to call my throne of contempt. I had my coat collar up and my shades on, because that was cool. Because <laughs> I'd have been any cooler when I got here, I'd have froze to death, for God's sake. I remember looking up on the backboard, I saw two big gates, and I thought to myself, my God, I wanted into an anti-aircraft brigade. <laughs> I didn't know what Alcoholics Anonymous was. I said to this kind of says, he says, it's Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, I sunk down in my seat. 
Gangs just weren't supposed to be hanging out with them winos. Been gangs is anonymous or over hip anonymous. Oh, dope things. Oh, man, is that something? You get into that dope thing business, can't you? Make addicts seem kind of candy ass, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> You and you sit, you sit. I can't help it. So, well, I wait for these women to tell their racist story. Okay, you got to remember when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, there weren't very many young 30 Alcoholics Anonymous. There just wasn't. These old guys got up to talk that day and they'd say they drank for a long time. You could look at them and know they'd been somewhere for a long time. <laughs> They said, I used to drink. I said, I bet you did. <laughs> Bad stuff, too. I knew everything. When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I knew everything. People like me who sit back there know everything. We just don't know how to stay sober, but we know everything else. I had a head full of useless information when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I was walking encyclopedia of useless information. I knew what, I knew so damn much about what wasn't true, I didn't recognize what was true. In our book, Alcoholics Anonymous, at the tail end of the spiritual experience, is a paragraph that would describe me to you better than anything that I know. I'm getting into recovery right now. That's <laughs> I, I really don't judge, I just observe and report the facts. <laughs> In this paragraph, the word is a principle which is a boon to mankind. It's bound to keep him in everlasting ignorance. That is a principle of contempt prior to investigation. And before I came to you good people, I was so frightened of failing I never tried anything. I just sit around wherever I was at and said, tomorrow, tomorrow I'm going to do it. Tomorrow. Tomorrow I woke up sick. Tomorrow I had to get well. And went on and on and on. The only thing that broke up that cycle in my life is when they arrested me. When I said in my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, these people talked to me about God. And when I came here and they talked to me about God, I was so paranoid, I suppose, I got up and ran. Not because I was so frightened of God, but because I didn't want anything to do with these people. So I kept coming back to your meetings with Alcoholics Anonymous every week because there was a different group of people coming in there. On my first meeting with Alcoholics Anonymous, I was so fascinated by the people that I kept coming back. You see, it was beyond my comprehension to realize or even try to understand why anybody in their right mind would get up on a Sunday morning Drive 185 miles up those old back roads to come and talk to a room full of convicts who didn't want to listen to them. I comprehend you. You see, never in my life before I got to you good people did I ever associate with anybody who ever did anything 
for anybody for nothing. It's beyond my comprehension. I don't understand what was going on here. They talked about God. I kept coming back. They talked about God. I kept leaving. I know what's going on around here. I was in the meeting the other night, and a guy said to me, tell you how you've changed after you get wonderful here. <laughs> the guy said to me, you're going to talk about God tonight, Johnny? I said, oh, probably. Well, I probably mentioned him. Why? Oh, he said, you shouldn't do that. Yeah. I said, why not? He says, it's the newcomers. He says, you run them out, they're sensitive. <laughs> I have a message for the newcomers. If God will run you out of Alcoholics Anonymous, whiskey will run your rusty butt back in here. <laughs> Never in my life have I ever been anywhere in my life before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous or since. I was ever more confused about what went on here than I was in this meeting. I didn't understand, I had a slightest idea of what was going on. I'd hear people get up at podiums like this and say things like, I used to drink, now I don't drink anymore and everything is wonderful. <laughs> I said, I guess I'm not alcoholic. They say, you get, you get active, you get active, they say. I, I thought active meant motion. So I ran around like a chick with my head cut off. <laughs> I picked up ashtrays and poured coffee and smiled at people. <laughs> and I went back there and said an inventory point and died. I'm doing what you told me to do and I'm crazy. My logical explanation to me is this. Logical. I'm not alcoholic. Now if I was alcoholic, all I have to do is not drink and pick up these damn ashtrays and I'd do wonderful like they are. <laughs> but there's some far more wrong with me than that. And every time I ask one of these people anything, they say it's in the book. <laughs> What's in the book? Oh, it's there. <laughs> I've, I've learned a great thing in alcoholics now. You want to hide anything from an alcoholic? Put it in the book. They are looking. The people now they all the cycle babble is filtering through here. You think the book's outdated? <laughs> Let me tell you something about the book. That book, Alcoholics Now, has been in publication something below fifty-five years. It's been responsible for changing more lives in the years it's been in publication than all the combined therapy in the history of the world. That's the reason I'm standing here tonight. Faith and shame over the book. I didn't get into the book Alcoholics Anonymous to find this fantastic, magical way of life that I've lived in, this good life is mine. I went into the book Alcoholics Anonymous to prove to you life difference this program wouldn't work for me. That's why I did it. With my defiance and my rebellion and my differences that I've pride for myself in, the greatest single event that ever happened to me in my entire lifetime happened to me sitting in a room with a man almost 31 years ago doing what our program recovery called Fifth Step. I heard myself admit to this man that I was an alcoholic. 
Way down deep inside of me, there came a freedom that I carry with me this very instant. As I stand here before you tonight, I know exactly what's wrong with me. I'm an alcoholic. I suffer from a disease called alcoholism. I'm not an alcoholic and anything. When I was an alcoholic and something, I couldn't have your program. And the reason I couldn't is because I separated me from you. I was either better than you or worse than you, or smarter than you or dumber than you. But I was not like you. I separated. You see, when I became just like you, alcoholic, I got to do what the alcoholics have to do. I could no longer sit around and justify my differences and stay on the outside, looking on the inside and telling you things like, well, you may have to work those steps, but because I'm left-handed, I don't have to quite do it that way. It's a miracle, my life. From that moment to this moment, I have never wanted to be anywhere else doing anything else with anybody else. And everything in that program of Alcoholics Anonymous is in our program, I have just wanted to do. I just wanted to. People came into my life and started teaching me things that had no business teaching me. People came into my life who were more concerned with saving my life and they weren't hurting my feelings. They still think like, because my vocabulary consists of about four or four letter words, they say things like this, cussing is a crutch for conversational cripples. And then they'd stand my wrath when I rained on them. You know, on the fourth day of June, 1961, soon to be 30 years, they opened up the door of their penitentiary and turned me loose on society. To a world I didn't know anything about, things I knew nothing about, armed with only one simple thing, a program of recovery called Alcoholics Anonymous that had come out of a book, examples of the people who carried the meaning of Alcoholics Anonymous to me in that institution, and the dream that you would let me come and sit in your meetings with you. That's all I wanted to do. I said to myself somewhere in that 19 month that I was in the penitentiary in Alcoholics Anonymous, that if you allow me to come and sit in your meetings, the privilege of sitting here, I'll do anything you ask me to do, anytime you want me to do it. To the best of my ability, I have kept that commitment to you to the best of my ability for almost 30 years now. And if I don't ever die an alcoholic anonymous, I want to do it right here in the meetings. I want to be sitting in meetings with alcoholics anonymous. I want to be doing what we do in AA. And so they pat me in the face with a spade somewhere. Because this is the only good life I've ever known. There isn't anything inside of me that even makes me want to believe that I can stay sober. I have never, ever forgotten where my sobriety came from and who is responsible for it. Never. I came out of that penitentiary on the 4th day of June, 1961. We went home to see my mother and she fell off the step blind drunk. I picked her and put her on the couch said, Mom, I'm going to an AA meeting. She said, Fine, I think you should. 
my mother's still drinks. My mother's 86 years old and she still drinks whiskey out of a bottle. I learned the greatest lesson in my life from my mother. I learned that I do not have the power to get anybody sober. If I had the power to get anybody sober, I wouldn't be here. I'd be over there at my mother's doorstep getting my mother sober. I don't have that power. I don't have the power to get her drunk either. I don't have the power to keep me sober. Good God, where would I get any power? I came here powerless. That makes you think because I've been here for a period of time that I've accumulated any power. That isn't what our book says. Our book says that I had a daily reprieve contingent upon my maintenance of certain spiritual conditions. <laughs> that always makes me chuckle. Where would a donkey like me get any type of spiritual condition? I didn't have any coming in the door. I look up things in dictionaries. You know what reprieve means? You just stay of execution from a death sentence. That's what I have. I got a disease that kills more people in this country than anything that's ever been known to man. But 95% of the people who have my illness die from it today. Today, with all the things that's going on. We're the lucky ones. Most of the people who have my disease will never come and sit in meetings without public knowing. And yet, from time to time, in my own sickness, I seem to think that I have some type of a right to be here just because I don't drink. That's when I'm full of selfishness and self-centeredness. When I'm living the way you have taught me to live, I have to realize that it's an absolute privilege for me to be allowed to come and sit with you good people. Privilege to be here. It's privilege to do anything that people in Alcoholics Anonymous ask me to do. Anything. I had a sponsor when I came out of the penitentiary who told me that I had to go to work. My wife had come back and she brought that little girl and he said, you should go to work, bum. I said, Norm, I'm not a bum. He says, what are you? I said, I'm an AA member. He says, you're an AA member, bum. <laughs> He says, bums don't work. I said, well, I'm looking. I wanted a physician. I didn't know how to do anything, but I was good at that. Went to work in the office. Somebody stole my first paycheck. You want to hear somebody scream? They'll lift their feet when they get stolen from for them. Well, I ran and raved and jumped and hollered. If I could have caught that guy, he'd have another coffee here tonight. <laughs> I'd be up in Folsom with all the rest of the losers telling you they don't work. You ever notice that? People who can't make it here tell you, they don't work. Yes, it does. Yes, if anybody who would ever stand in the pool of alcoholics and all this and tell you that they ain't even enough, they never tried AA. I don't know what they've tried, but they ain't tried AA. <laughs> when I was a new, fairly new, I used to ride around a car with the 
chuckle out and snarl a lot. And I would tell the story about Typhoid Mary. But I used to ask questions, what is all this nonsense that's going on around here? I don't know whether you've ever heard the story of Typhoid Mary or not. Typhoid Mary in my country was an old woman who was a packer of the virus typhoid who ran around to all the mining camps in the mining country and cooked for all the miners. And although she never had the symptoms of typhoid, she carried the disease and she could transmit it. And many and many and many and many a miner died because typhoid Mary went around there without the symptoms and inoculated. And sometimes I sit around in meetings with Alcoholics Anonymous today and listen to all the typhoid Marys who are around here. We say to our members and our alcoholics who come to us, oh, Alcoholics Anonymous is not quite enough. You have to go and help yourself over here a little heavier with this and that. And that may be fine for people who are not alcoholics. But this is the only thing that's ever worked for alcoholics in 5,000 years. The only thing. If anything else had ever worked, alcoholics would have found it. And I sit in means of Alcoholics Anonymous and I hear things like that and I see things like that and I saw things like that when I was new. And my sponsor said to me, your primary purpose is to stay sober, Johnny. And my, my sponsor, a very wise man by the name of Norm Malfi, knew something that I didn't know. He knew that I had been in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and had practiced this program of Alcoholics Anonymous for 19 months in the penitentiary. But he knew I didn't know anything else. He knew I didn't know anything at all about real common little things that people have to do about interfering with people. So I would sit in meetings with my sponsor and I'd try to say something to him. He'd say to me, shut up. <laughs> I'd say that no one would say, shut up. But one night I was sitting there and Chuck was talking and he talked a long time and I had to go to the bathroom and I, I said to Norm, Norm, he said, shut up. I said, I have to go to the bathroom. He said, sit still and shut up. <laughs> I said, I'm going to wet my pants. He said, so what? <laughs> and then one night, hot July night, he was going to come by and pick me up and take me to a meeting. And I was standing there with my tank top and my shorts and my thong. He drove up, took one look at me, and drove off. <laughs> I was angry and hostile, and I called him up at 11 o'clock at night. And I said, what, what just what did you, what did you like to embarrass newcomer? What's the matter with you? You yell at me and me, tell me to shut up. You make me sit there and I almost wet my pants. Now, insults of all insults, you drive off and leave me standing like a fool on the street corner. What's the matter with you? Do you get jollies out of embarrassing me? You said, Johnny, would you go to church dressed like that? And I said, no, I wouldn't. He said, you ain't going to my church dressed like that either. He said, I want to ask you a question, Johnny. He says, you ever stop to think when you're sitting in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous 
and you reach over and start to shoot your mouth off that somebody else may want to hear even if you don't? Have you ever stopped to think about that? Have you ever thought to think that you get up and stumble over somebody in a meeting because you're uncomfortable for a second? But somebody else may want to hear when you don't want to? Have you ever thought to think about anybody but yourself? I had to answer, no, I hadn't. I hadn't thought about that. I was only interested in me because I hadn't had a drink of alcohol or mood all in chemical in that penitentiary. Didn't mean I knew anything about being unselfish or unselfserving. It never dawned on me that if I'm sitting in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, somebody may want to hear even if I don't want to hear. He told me, if you don't want to go to meetings, that's fine, John. And if you don't want to hear in meetings, that's fine also. But for God's sake, at least have enough consideration for the guy sitting next to you that they may want to. Because if that guy who's alcoholic is sitting next to you and doesn't hear, he may die. Do you want to do that? So, I've learned to sit in meetings, listen to everything that goes on here. Not because I'm so wonderful, but because I don't want to miss the word. Or I don't want to miss the phrase. Or I don't want to miss the thought that I may need someday out there when the tigers are at my throat and my life is hanging on the line whether I'll drink or not. Because I'm alcoholic, you see. I'm an alcoholic. I suffer from a disease called alcoholism. My problem seems to be sobriety. Alcohol is not my problem. I heard a gal talk today and she said that she doesn't have a drinking problem anymore. She only has a thinking problem. That ain't the way it is with me. I'll have a drinking problem till the day I die. It will never wear its ugly head if I don't drink. And it's not very much I can do, but I can do what this program of Alcoholics Anonymous asked me to do. And when I do what this program of Alcoholics Anonymous asked me to do, I don't have to drink. I'm comfortable enough out here where it is necessary for me to drink. And I don't have to think to drink. All I have to do is quit doing what this program of recovery asked me to do and someday I'll wake up drunk. I've got no immunity against drinking because I haven't had a drink for over 30 years. I don't get to live sober in Alcoholics Anonymous just because I've been sober. I get to stay sober today by what I do today. This is the day I stay sober. Not tomorrow, not yesterday. This is the day I stay sober. I still find I have to do a lot of things that I have to do. I still have to have a sponsor. I only had two sponsors. My first sponsor died after 22 years of sobriety with me. He died. I had to get another sponsor. I don't read why. It's because I can't run my own life. I wish I could. I've got a track record to prove to you. I can't, I can't trust my own judgment. My judgment is not slanted towards you. When I think about things, it's not, I wonder what I can do for marriage. When I think about anything deep, it's always slanted on what am I going to get... <laughs> there I was in my first meeting with alcoholics and <laughs> <laughs>
there's two things my sponsor, there's one thing my sponsor taught me, uh, and I just relate a little bit to you, but the greatest thing my sponsor ever taught me in my life was that I was not special. That there wasn't anything special about us, and we weren't God's chosen children just because we're sober. My sponsor taught me that. He taught me that because he made me do the things that everybody else has to do. He wouldn't let me drive an automobile until I had a driver's license. He made me ride my little girl's bicycle through my old neighborhood on my way to AA meeting. She had a little pink bicycle. She had a big back wheel and a little bitty front wheel and a basket with flowers woven through it. And every time I told him I had money to buy a car, he asked me if I had a driver's license. I said, my driver's license, and then she spent it for the rest of my natural life. He said, then you won't drive a car for the rest of your natural life. I said, why not? He said, citizens like me have a right to be protected from jerks like you. <laughs> you think they have a right to live any damn way they please? So when the day came that I had a driver's license and insurance and an automobile, I drove over there and he put his arm around me and he hugged me. He told me, maybe you're starting to get the idea that there's nothing special about you at all just because you're sober. But you have to live just like everybody else lives, John. As a matter of fact, as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, you should try to live just a little better than the guy next to you. At work, you should do just a little bit more. In a restaurant, you should be a little more courteous. When you're out with the public, you should be a little more thoughtful. When you're sitting in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, you should be concerned about the newcomer who's sitting in meetings. And I am. I'm really concerned. That's why I don't lie to people from the podium. That's why I don't tell people all you got to do is come out here and put the plug of the drug in your butt in your chair and you'll be fine. But that's all you ever do if you're alcoholic sooner or later your butt will get tired. And you go crazy in your drink. That's what happens to alcoholics. I don't send alcoholics anywhere else. I used to ride around the car with that old man that I love so much. His name is Chuck. And he said to me things that I didn't understand. And one night I stole a piece of literature off the literature table to read to him. And it was a thing like, why we were chosen. And I tried to read that to him. He stopped me. He said, we're not chosen. I said, what do you mean? It says right here. He said, I don't care what that says. He says, we're all God's kids, Johnny. If I am, you are. And if you are, I am. <laughs> he says, it makes the rain to fall on the just as well as the unjust. Then I said to him, then how come I'm sober? How come I'm sober? I know people who are far better people than I'll ever be who aren't sober. But how come I'm sober, Papa? He said, that's very simple. You've come to understand you're one of God's kids and you act like it. <laughs> See how they're all around here? <laughs> that that's too simple for people like me. How do God's kids act? I don't know how God's kids act. I can tell you how the God's kids that I looked at when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous acted. They come and they sit and take their place in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
And they're concerned about the people who sit on both sides of them. They're concerned about the newcomer. They have a primary purpose in life is to stay sober and pay the message of the alcoholic who still suffers. They sit in their home group and their home group meets. They keep on some type of a constant contact with the sponsor and they bounce their nonsense off these sponsors. They dress like they look that your life has been saved, so it looks like they have some type of an idea that it was worth saving. And they're out there trying to help people get things done that need to be done, and they do it just for the hell of it. That's what God's kids do. That's what I've had to emulate in the people who did that were sitting in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's what my sponsor did. That's what that old man who was like a father to me does. That's what my sponsor today does. And that's what the things happen. So what will happen to you if you act like God's kid? I can tell you a lot of things. I can tell you you can stay sober no matter what comes. You can stay sober when you're five years sober and you come home one day and your wife has committed suicide. I can tell you you can stay sober doing that. I tell you you can stay sober and raise two little girls who get raised up. And even though some of them get into drugs and some of them get into trouble, you can still stay sober and you live the day by staying sober and going to meetings and letting them live their life the way they want to live their life. And not assuming responsibility, they're asking for your own action. I can guarantee you, you can stay sober in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and someday you can sit down in your living room in your house and watch all four of your little grandsons tear it up. I can tell you you can stay sober if you do the things that the people around here before you have done. You can stay sober when you go into business problems and when you lose a lot of money, when you can lose friends, when everybody near and dear to you and close to you and all your strength has died and gone, you can still stay sober. You can still stay sober and it's when the long and torturous, painful divorce comes about when your 20 years marriage is ended. You can stay sober. You can stay sober in the middle of the night when the nightmares are all about you and the guilt and the remorse are eating you up and you don't know whether you're right or whether you're wrong and you do not have the ability to get down on your knees and pray because it seems like mumble jumble. And you can think about somebody that you know in Alcoholics Anonymous and you know that the light has come into their eyes. And there's a power that permeates their life. You're pretty sure that if you say in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, you can stay sober and there's a power in your life. I can tell you all those things that just happened to me. I can also tell you that if you stay sober in Alcoholics Anonymous and you do what the people who have gone before you do, that the day will come in your life when you wouldn't change places with anybody who lives upon the face of this earth. I don't know anybody in the world who lives any better than I do. Nobody. I know people who have a lot more things than I do, but I don't know anybody who lives any better than I do. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I love its people. I just love it. You are the reason I am. You're the reason I do the things that I do. Because I want... I'd rather be here with you than anywhere else upon the face of earth. Something happens to me in Alcoholics Anonymous that does not happen to me anywhere else. There are moments like this evening. When I sit there and heard the fifth chapter of the Sedition Dread and said, look at these magnificent people. 
We've been sober for 40 years. We've been hacking it out there while we've kept it going for rushing for time. What happens to me in that moment, in that instant of my life, I take my eyes off of me and I put them onto you. And in that instant of my life, I'm as close to my God as I'm ever going to get. As close as I'm ever going to get. A long time ago, a man said that nature abhors a vacuum, but God abhors a vacuum even more under heaven and earth. Empty yourself of self, he said, and you will be automatically full of God. When I said with you good people, and I listened to you like I listened to Eddie and Bob talk last night, and as I wandered through the meeting today and listened to the people talk about the old timers and sponsorship and the relationships and all the stuff that I said and listened to today, I wasn't doing that because I was interested in all that stuff. I was interested in the people, and while I was interested in the people, I was not interested in me and the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous took place in my life at that moment. That's the miracle. I am not the miracle. The miracle is you in this program. Our program is a miracle. Our program permeates miracles for people like you. I can sit in a room full of people like you and feel safe and sane and sober and secure. Every living thing I have in my life, I order Alcoholics Anonymous. Everything. Everything I never hope to have in my life, I order the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And you better believe this. It's a long, long walk from a cell in solitary confinement in a maximum security penitentiary to where I stand tonight. But for the grace of God, AA, and good friends like you, I could have missed it all. God bless you.